Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. On today's show, we'll discuss Jay Clayton's departure from the SEC and the first real taste of cases from the SEC Enforcement Division's Exchange Traded Products Initiative. For our interview segment, we welcome in former NSCP chair and industry stalwart Miriam Lefkowitz to do a deep dive on how firms can best prepare for the practical application of regulation best interest into their firm's compliance programs. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the What's On My Mind series, where our focus today will be on the recent rule proposal for finders and how this broker-dealer exemption could be just what we need to help struggling businesses with capital formation. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, recently SEC Chair Jay Clayton announced that he will be stepping down at the end of 2020. Mr. Clayton was sworn in on May 4, 2017. In the announcement, the SEC highlighted that Mr. Clayton led the agency through multiple market challenges, most notably the recent COVID-19 pandemic and everybody's ability to work from home all of a sudden, the proliferation of initial coin offerings in 2017, and the transition away from LIBOR. They also noted a few other accomplishments, including the finalization of more than 65 different rulemakings, including regulation best interest, over 2,700 enforcement actions, more than $14 billion in financial remedies, over $3.5 billion return to harmed investors, and over $565 million return to whistleblowers, including the largest single award of $114 million in the program's history. Moving on to our next topic, recently three investment advisory firms and two duly registered broker-dealers and advisory firms settled SEC charges related to improper sales of volatility-linked exchange-traded products. According to the SEC orders, representatives of the five firms recommended that clients buy and hold certain volatility-linked exchange-traded products, despite the fact that the offering documents made it clear that the products were intended for short-term holding. The SEC found that the firms failed to implement adequate policies and procedures concerning suitability and volatility-linked exchange-traded products. The SEC further noted that the two duly registered broker-dealer firms failed to supervise uh, certain brokerage and investment advisory reps who recommended that these clients buy these complex exchange-traded products and then hold them for extended periods of time. As set out in all five orders, the firms violated Sections 2064 of the Investment Advisors Act and the Compliance Rule, both of which require firms maintain written compliance policies. What's the practical takeaway here? These cases really stand out to me as the first ones generated by the SEC Enforcement Division's Exchange Traded Products Initiative. The initiative is being led by the division's complex financial products unit and really leverages data analytics to help potentially identify these unsuitable sales and related violations. While the SEC has brought similar cases in the past for unsuitable exchange traded funds being sold to retail clients, the packaging of these cases together and the announcement of the new initiative makes it clear that the SEC continues to remain focused on this topic, specifically the sale of exchange-traded products, and that there will be more of these kinds of cases in the near future. Well, if there is one topic in today's industry that is dominating the press and the headlines, and certainly one that is an area of focus for all legal and compliance practitioners, it is Reg BI and Form CRS. And 
I am incredibly excited to welcome an expert in this area on today's show, Ms. Miriam Lefkowitz. Miriam has served as a chief legal and compliance officer for 18 years since she left the, the SEC's Division of Enforcement, where she served as senior counsel. She has a wealth of experience working with investment advisors, broker dealers, and dual registrants, experience with muni bonds, equities, and absolutely everything retail. Um, she's also been involved with the National Society of Compliance Professionals for quite some time, including having formerly served as the chair of the board of directors. And in addition to that, she currently serves as an expert witness for regulatory litigation and arbitration matters, and she runs her own legal practice. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you, of course, to the NSCP and to Calfi for hosting this podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Welcome. Well, we have a lot to cover because, again, as we mentioned at the top, this is uh, absolutely a subject matter that is really affecting registrants uh, at every level, whether you're a broker dealer, a dual registrant or an investment advisor, regulation best interest and form CRS is something that you absolutely need to make sure you are addressing inside your firm. We uh, at the at the NSCP have certainly done a lot on this topic. There's obviously been a regulation best interest forum they've had in place for over a year now. It continues to be a hot topic in the monthly newsletter currents, um, including a couple articles, I think, that you helped write back in July and September. So thank you for those. And in addition, you know, having just finished up the, the NSCP's national conference was obviously something that was talked about at great length in a number of different sessions. So I think to get us started here, you know, we've now been in this world where Reg BI is effective for more than a quarter, right? So we've got at least a quarter's worth of evidence and experience by which to help inform where we are today. That in mind, I know that the SEC recently just did a, a, a an open forum type call. But what I'm really interested in, because I'm sure many of our listeners probably saw or heard that or have even heard some of the summaries of it. You know, what have you seen in your experience, Miriam, what's been some of the practical application of the rule and, and where are some of those tripwires? Sure, that's a great question. There's so many, there's so many areas to, to trip up here. Fortunately, Reg BI and Form CRS didn't sneak up on us. We did have a lot of time in the SEC and even FINRA have been very helpful by issuing a lot of guidance, uh, which they're continuing to do. So um, we're going to talk about some of that guidance and I'll also talk about some of my own observations or concerns. So one concern is identifying retail investors. This is something that actually came up on the roundtable on October 26th. Um, some firms were confused with for, with the relationship summary or form CRS. It's the same document. Uh, if they weren't make, making recommendations, do they still have to have a form CRS? And the answer is yes. Even if you have friends and family account, even if you're not getting fees, commissions, it doesn't matter. You have a duty to deliver the form CRS. So that's that's a fairly easy one. One that might have been missed is family offices. So family offices can be very large, manage an awful lot of money. And the way they may sneak in is that if they are not managed by a professional manager. So if you have a, a, a family office that chose to, chooses to register with the, with the SEC as an RAA and the manager is registered, then this is not subject to Reg BI. But family offices, there's a carve out. They don't have to be registered. If the advisor is giving advice, is not currently registered, then the family office may constitute a retail investor and will be subject both to Reg BI and, of course, to the Form CRS delivery requirement. Got it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. You talked about some of the different tripwires and, and you talked about 
there being uh, one that was related to kind of the, some of the disclosures that firms may be looking at? What, where have you seen some of the biggest challenges on that front? So that's a great question, too. And this is something that the SEC did address also in their roundtable. And I think it's important, If again, if you haven't listened, you might choose to do that. There were two in particular that I think were not obvious. First, which is the, the form CRS, you're not permitted to include anything, even if it's helpful. So nothing extraneous, even if it's correct and helpful and accurate. So let me give two examples. The first is that item four asks firms or directs firms to identify if the firm or any of their registered or associated persons have disciplinary history. So the answer there has to be yes or no. Could be yes for the firm, no for reps or the reverse. Right. It is not permitted to say one out of our X number of reps or two out of our X number of reps have disciplinary history. Got it. So that would be deemed extraneous. And the SEC actually feels very strongly about this. They updated their FAQ in October on this point as well. I think that there's a real tension here I'd like yeah. to point out. Yeah. Because, Please. yeah, so the instructions to form CRS do direct that you may not include any disclosure in the relationship summary other than disclosure that's required or permitted. So there's a word permitted. But the very next instruction, I think, says that all information in the relationship summary must be true and may not omit material facts necessary to make it not misleading. Mm -hmm. So I think that when many firms reading this would say that when you're discussing dis disciplinary history, this is a type of disclosure that would be permitted. And arguably, it's highly relevant to a retail investor, whether 20% of your RRs or IARs have disciplinary history, or maybe a fraction of 1%. <laughs> right. Sure. So that's one of them. And there's a second issue, too, that I think also may, may create a little bit of a tripwire for firms. What's the second issue? A, the oh, second sorry. issue is an item three, which is a fee disclosure, but it also includes standards of conduct. And there is designated language that the SEC expects RIAs to use. And at the roundtable, the SEC noted that some firms were slipping the word fiduciary into that disclosure. Mm. And they said, that's not permitted. You must only use the exact language. And I think that this is something that firms, that RIAs may get validly, you know, I think it's a really easy mistake for them to make because the same day they issued the form CRS proposing release, they also issued the fiduciary release for investment advisors, investment advisors are subject, of course, to a fiduciary standard. Right, right. In the directions to form CRS, nowhere does it say the word fiduciary. It doesn't say you can't use it. So for firms that want to be clear on this, there's the 520-something page adopting release and, you know, in or about you know, the text around footnote 50, whatever it is, there is a healthy discussion about why fiduciary appeared in the proposal, but not in the final rule, uh, because their focus groups found it very confusing. Okay. And so I understand that, but for, 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 for a lot of firms, when they're reading the actual directions and instructions for form CRS, would think that adding the word fiduciary would actually be both informative and accurate. Uh, but the SEC has said absolutely not. I think firms, so we saw this, a similar issue, I think, in when the form ADV 2A first came out, there's an instruction that says on the cover sheet, if you choose to refer to yourself as a registered investment advisor, you need to include specific language saying that registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Sure. And that's true on the form ADV 2A. 
I have not seen the SEC take action against firms that call themselves registered in any other place. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking, but I don't know with certainty, is that firms can still call themselves fiduciaries, just not on this relationship summary. Got it. Got it. So, so again, they could say something to that fact or distinguish that fact in the 2A, but as far as, far as it relates to the form CRS, they, it can't be included. Is that, is that accurate? That's right. And like the reason I'm spending time on this is I do think these are a little bit of a gotcha. These are the types of problems that firms that are trying to do the right thing could get wrong. And there's ambiguous instructions in, there are ambiguous instructions that the SEC has given on this point. Sure. So they did issue the FAQ on one. I hope they issue an FAQ on the other as well. So as it relates to, I mean, you, you've already identified a couple really key issues that I'm sure a lot of firms are trying to look out for. You know, an, another one that I think would be interesting, or certainly I would really like to get your thoughts on is, you know, what kind of expectations or what kind of challenges do you think firms are facing with regard to training on this front? And this is especially true, right? Because the global pandemic hasn't gone anywhere and many people are still work from home. And now some of even that, uh, some of the like exemptive guidance, right, that the FINRA, that FINRA and the SEC had put out about supervision protocols and other types of stuff. Firms are kind of in this limbo period where they're not exactly sure what to expect or where to plant the flag. So I, I don't know, you know, what 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 challenges are you seeing there, and you know, would you have any practical advice for for folks? Yeah, I think that when as as the deadline, the compliance date for Reg BI and Form CRS were coming firms were suddenly thrown into what we now know was the beginning stages of COVID quarantine. But at the time, we didn't know that. So I think a lot of firms took the perspective that they were going to do not necessarily the minimum, but but in fact, that's what it turned out to be. They did what needed to be done with the expectation that they could do a much more robust and effective training once people were all back in the same location, which was a valid perspective in April and May when we had a June deadline. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now we're in November and we're not back at the office. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's time. If you just circulated your policies and procedures, that's not sufficient. I think what's really necessary is to have something that's interactive. If you're going to do a Zoom call, that's fine. If you're going to do an internal FAQ, that's probably good too. Sure. Um, I'm a I'm a huge fan of role playing. Yeah, um, sure. Nobody likes doing it, but we really do learn a lot. And so, you know, some firms are putting together little vignettes and demonstrating. And I, I think if you were you were thinking that you could just get away with circulating your policies, I don't think that's going to work. Or even circulating a couple questions, I think there needs to be some interactive components. Mm-hmm. So you've, all, I mean, again, uh, one very much appreciate that that perspective. I, I do want to dig in though a little bit, and specifically around the idea of what you've seen, good and bad. I mean, you just mentioned on the you, you mentioned earlier a little bit about disclosures. You mentioned also good and bad tra- training, probably that you would want to employ. Let, let's let's go back to that disclosures one and dig in a little bit there because. I do think, you know, that is one of the core parts of this rule, right? It's making sure you have made the proper disclosures and really identifying, tailoring those disclosures to make sure that they fit your specific business. So as far as what you've seen, (laughs) right, over the last quarter, uh, good versus bad, maybe give one or two examples of some things that you think firms should be on the lookout for and how they might be able to help improve their own disclosures. 
Sure, I'm happy to do that. And again, um, the the SEC did a really nice job of covering this in their call. So I'm gonna I'm gonna encourage people to look at that. What what I did is I pulled different disclosures for a lot of different firms and compared them on specific points. And essentially, some firms with really simple business models may be able to squeeze their disclosures into their form CRS without necessarily linking it to additional doc without linking to additional RBI disclosure documents. But most firms are not going to be able to do that. And so I, I've actually taken a number of firm disclosures, put them side by side, and compared them. I've seen some firms that had it backwards. I've seen dual registrants that described the RIA duty <laughs> under the BD section <laughs> and vice versa. Whoops. I've seen a lot of broken links, links to documents that might be very helpful, but they're not working. Mm -hmm. I've seen disclosure that I think... I'm going to say buys problems from the future because um, it may warrant regulation under a different regime. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit going forward. I think it's more helpful to talk. It would be helpful to talk a little about the process, like what can firms do? Yeah, please. This point? Yeah, sure. Sure. So at first, I would start by definitely listen so to the um, SEC. It's a two-hour session, one hour dedicated to form CRS and disclosures, uh, the other two reg BI of which there's a disclosure component. It is time well spent. It's available on their website now. So I would start by looking at what the SEC has already pointed you to. But after that, I would physically pull the, pull your own disclosures and compare them to your near competitors or firms that have similar business models. Obviously, you don't want to copy someone else's language or infringe on anyone's copyright. Um, but it's a very good way to see how are you disclosing something versus how are other firms disclosing them. I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I think, you know, all too often firms can feel very isolated, right? When they're trying to craft their own disclosures and they can feel um, in that isolation of, oh, I've got to put this together. I can only, you know, use the resources I have. You know, benchmarking is a great way. To, to get a feel for how your disclosures and how your forms are going to stand up when compared to other like peers, right? And so I think that's a great point. I agree. I think there's always a little danger um, with benchmarking to get too comfortable when you're in the middle of the herd. So sure. it's not the be all end all, but it's certainly a very strong and solid place to start. So what other disclosures have you seen? I mean, one, one thing I know, some feedback that, that we've received from, from different dual registrants and, and other IAs and, and BDs in this space is that they're having some trouble identifying the disclosures or exactly what they should say around monitoring because it is such a topic. I mean, it's such an area that feels like it's a balancing act, <laughs> especially when you're on the dual registrant side and the types of monitoring that you may or may not be doing and what that qualifies you for as far as the services that you can provide. Do you have any thoughts there? I do. I think I think disclosures around monitoring are challenging and, and they in particular because there are responsibilities and duties that flow from whether you're a broker or whether you're an investment advisor. And of course, the Reg BI and Form CRS were the, you know, were 1,100 of, or maybe 1,130 of the 1,200 page package we all got in June of 2019 as a gift. <laughs> but there were two other releases at the same time. One of them directed at brokers, which was the solely incidental release. And the other one I called earlier the fiduciary release, and that was directed at investment advisors. 
And both of those releases do focus on monitoring and the role it plays in the relationship between the firm and the, and the client. And so when it comes to disclosures, some firms, even brokerage firms have been saying, we're going to continually monitor or we're going to, we're going to monitor your accounts. Well, first there's an issue that if you say you're going to do it, of course, you have all the compliance supervisory responsibility to do it. But let's put that aside for a moment. If you're continually monitoring the assets and the accounts, not in connection with the purchase or recommendation of securities, you may want to revisit the solely incidental release and see if in fact your firm needs to be registered as an investment advisor. And it's a pretty, it's a fact specific inquiry, Yeah. but sometimes more is too much and you don't want to put yourself out there. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, that's, it's a great point. I mean, absolutely. Obviously I think this is where a lot of firms find themselves in a tricky position because they'll have clients that will ask them to do certain things. Right. And then as an accommodation, right. Oftentimes those firms will say, well, look, I want to, I want to try to provide, you know, great service for my clients. I want to try to do X, Y, Z. And so they'll, they'll take that step, right. And they'll, they'll go a little bit out. And then ultimately what ends up happening is now they've committed themselves to a much higher standard. Right. And that's, that's where they can get themselves into trouble. Absolutely. I think about my mom. She's, she's a muni bond buyer. Like a lot of women of her age are, and she, she gets irritated when she sees the interest hitting the account and nothing being purchased. And so her rep has said, I'll monitor. And when you have X number to buy a bond, right? I will, oh, I'll come to you and tell you to buy a bond. Well, I think that that that's a duty to monitor that goes well beyond. No, it's, it's in order to purchase, but I think it could be otherwise, depending on how they phrase it. So I think it's an important point. We also see a problem. I think it's even a bigger regulatory issue on the RIA side, we see sort of the converse problem. So I've seen RIA disclosures, the, the solely, not the solely, the fiduciary release makes clear that firms have a duty to give advice and monitor that's pretty much coextensive with the relationship with the, with the client. Right. And you can shape that by contract, but you're still, you are a fiduciary, right? This was the fiduciary release. Exactly. And so this is where I see, I've seen some, some disclosure language that I think is a little bit concerning. I've seen RIAs that don't want to commit themselves or overextend themselves, which I understand, but I've seen disclosure documents that say, as an investment advisor, we will monitor your accounts no less than annually. <laughs> so I have a couple issues there. One is, are you meeting your fiduciary duty? Uh, that's a challenge. That may, that may not be. Even if you are, are your assets qualified as regulatory assets under management if you're only touching right. them? Yeah, no, you, you just you just touched on something. And I, you know, I, I chuckled a, a little bit hearing you describe that disclosure of, you know, we will monitor your accounts no less than annually. I mean, you know, when I was coming up and working in a lot of compliance departments and working with a lot of RIAs, the phrase of art that I kept hearing was ongoing monitoring and supervision as part of yep. your fiduciary, right, as part of your fiduciary responsibility. So hearing, I mean, uh, now people may do a deep dive on an account or do certain l larger scale reviews on an annual basis or some, but that's very different than if you're just, again, only monitoring it once a year. I think that's right. And if you are, then again, look at the instructions for form ADV 
um, are you providing, quote, regular and continuous supervisory management services? Specifically, the instructions say that if you're only doing it on a calendar basis, even quarterly, that would not qualify you for SEC registration of all of your assets. Right, right. Right. Let's extend. So I want to extend this conversation on disclosure because it brings it brings to mind another topic that I think a lot of firms are struggling with. I mean, again, we're only one quarter in, so we're in the early innings. There's still a lot of wood to chop here. But but let's talk about how have you seen firms approach the idea of of keeping these disclosures up to date? Right. Or this idea of like evergreening certain disclosures in a way that makes sense for firms to be able that so they feel some peace of mind that the, their disclosures match what their current operations are. So I think because it's so early, we haven't really seen much there, but I do think there's some best practices that firms can start adopting. And I, I obviously there has to be an annual review of your disclosures, but I think a quarterly review is probably healthy. And no less than annually, what I would recommend firms do is take a look at the instructions and leave them blank and just have a committee. And we'll talk about who should be on the committee in a minute. But literally, what if you're answering this question blind, don't start with your disclosures and say, how good are they? Um, because it's easy to lose the white space. I would start with the instructions and, you know, you don't have to write it out, but, you know, what are our material conflicts? What are our fees? And so forth. Have have your your committee write out the answers and then compare them to what you have on your actual disclosures on your form CRS and your reg BI disclosures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would definitely say even at the smaller firms, it's unlikely that any one person really should be doing this. You may have disclosures that are required by affiliates. You certainly need your FinOp or your CFO so you can understand your revenue sources. You may have new new streams of revenue that obviously have to be disclosed. There may be new conflicts you weren't aware of. If there's business development going on in new areas, you may want to start looking into that early on to make sure you can get that done. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned, uh, so, so again, for firms, as they're thinking about looking at these disclosures, just to reiterate a, a point you made, it probably makes a lot of sense for those compliance officers that are out there, for those chief legal officers that are out there to not necessarily try to do this in a vacuum. Right. That they should try to engage other people at their firm and even other people that would be part of their maybe even their professional network or other places to try to get an idea or a sense of exactly the kinds of things that they should be using to help vet the existing the, the existing disclosures that they have. Absolutely. I think that firms should leverage their existing conflicts committees. And if you firms that don't maybe smaller firms that are less formal uh, may not have them, it's time. I mean, I don't really know how you can track it would have been challenging before this new disclosure obligation and the form CRS obligation. I, I think that probably on the RIA side, firms already have practices and controls in place, hopefully, um, in connection with with their you know ADV disclosures. And so this is newer and maybe a bigger change for the broker dealers. Uh, but I think it's got to be a formal structure. They have to meet fairly regularly. They have to have the instructions. Um, and they also have to know, of course, you don't wait until the quarter ends to notify, you know, right. the compliance department of changes. Sure. Well, we can hope. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, you know, I guess we're kind of still kind of maybe I don't even know if we're in the first inning yet. Maybe we're still in the bullpen warming up before the first inning. But um, but I would just want to get your thoughts a little bit on if you are hearing anything about exams, what what exactly you, you've you've heard that, that, that the SEC is looking for. 
Sure. Well, the SEC um, did discuss, they didn't mention whether there's there going to be any enforcement recommendations, but they did discuss the nature and scope of the review they've done to date. And true to their word, um, they're looking for good faith efforts to comply. And for the most part, they found it. And the deficiencies that they have found, some of the significant deficiencies, I think, um, are in the actually in the compliance obligation. They found recitations of the rules and obligations without the specific details that, you know, we as compliance officers and supervisors know need to be there. Great that we have this obligation, but who's going to do what to evidence that it was done? And I think that that's, that's going to be a problem for firms that purchased new policies and procedures uh, without really customizing them. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with buying a manual off the shelf as long as sufficient attention is given to actually customizing it. But evidently, the SEC has seen quite a few instances where that's not happening. They might have been joking, but they even <laughs> said that in some cases, it seemed there was a simply the word suitability was replaced with best interest. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. You, you, <laughs> not, you, not your clients, I'm happy to say. <laughs> I appreciate that. And so do they, probably. No, that's that. That's really good. I um, I know we, we've heard a little bit of some of those kind of anecdotal uh, stories or experiences as well in the NSCP's Reg BI forum. And I know you, you and I had had chatted. What what a, a an, for folks that are looking for resources, right? That's a really great place to start. Absolutely. So um, very early on, when Reg BI and the associated rules were passed, Evershed Sutherland stepped forward and offered to do a biweekly or by month, twice a month <laughs> call um, to create a forum where they reviewed each section in small in small sections of all of the releases. And, you know, we got through that in the first few months. And after that, it's the agenda is really driven by the questions raised. And so it's it's led by Issa Hanna and Ben Marzuk of Evershed Sutherlands. And they, they'll answer any questions. If they don't know the answers, they do, they do a little homework and try to get back to you. They'll also talk about what they're seeing in the industry. It's a very valuable resource. And, um, if people have, you know, NSCP members should, should look to that as a real source of information. Yeah. No, that's great. I'll, I'll also give just a, a special shout out to Issa and Ben. They, they've done a fantastic job. I'm absolutely a, you know, frequent follower of that Reg BI forum and, um, Really appreciate their efforts there. I'll also give a quick shout out to the NSCP proper, who, if, if you're looking for materials that can be really helpful, go into the library of the Reg BI forum on that front and, and check out some of the different templates and other items that they have in there, because those can also be really, really beneficial for you and your firm. Miriam, before I let you go, okay, we're, I'm, we're, we're done with the technical stuff, but we're trying to, you know, look, we're, uh, we're, we're going to get you out of here on something a little more fun. What's the number one thing you are looking forward to doing once uh, this pandemic has subsided and you can get back to life as it was pre-pandemic? I miss having people over for dinner to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I miss entertaining. It's It was okay in the summer, but to just have a whole evening in front of you and maybe with a bottle, maybe with two bottles of wine. Sure. It's yeah. uh, it's it's going to be a real joy when we can really spend time together as opposed to on screens. Uh, yeah. How about you? I'm going to turn it back at you. Oh man, what that's are you, good. What are you missing most? Yeah, I mean, m mine's probably something similar. I I just 
like there was a great I forget if it was like a Travelocity commercial or something like that. But they were like, do you remember places Man, go, going to places? Wasn't that great? And I just thought to myself, yeah, that was great. I, I do miss going to places, with, <laughs> especially places with other people. Uh, you know, when uh, during the NSCP National Virtual Conference, when uh, we were talking to a couple panelists, uh, uh, actually Jay Krowitz from from the SEC said, you know, he missed going to concerts, and that's another one too. Like li yeah. like just seeing live music, you know, it was something else that I would say I I, I miss a lot too so yeah um, i would say faces it's i miss actually seeing faces <laughs> yeah not just a flat screen that's right yeah i mean we're really good at interpreting eyebrows these days but you know it's not, <laughs> not the, same the same not the same miriam it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on the podcast today really really appreciate all your expertise and and, and all your insight have a wonderful rest of your fall and winter and we'd love to have you back on the show here at some point Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Today's final segment features another installment in the What's On My Mind series. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, and in a tip of the cap to former Grouch-in-Chief and 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney, this segment will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue affecting the investment management industry. For those millennials who may not know who Andy Rooney is, shame on you. In today's segment, we're reviewing the recent call by SEC Commissioners Clayton and Peirce encouraging the Small Business Advisory Committee to consider the proposed registration exemptions for, quote, finders. As previously covered on this podcast in early October of this year, the SEC proposed to establish a new limited and conditional exemption from the broker registration requirements under the Exchange Act for natural persons engaging in certain limited capital raising activities on behalf of issuers seeking to raise funds from accredited investors. Just a few weeks ago, SEC Chair Jay Clayton and Commissioner Hester Peirce encouraged the Small Business Advisory Committee to consider this proposed rule. Mr. Clayton described the lack of clarity on the topic included confusion by small businesses looking to engage these finders and for certain individuals seeking to avoid engaging in activity potentially requiring registration as brokers. He went on to state that meaningful guidance in this area has not been advanced since the 70s and is long overdue. I think actually the real quote was <laughs> since the days of gas lines, disco, and parachute pants, but you, you get the idea. Mr. Clayton noted the potential of the proposed order to connect small businesses in need of capital with investors interested in emerging enterprises, particularly in light of the pandemic on small businesses, is critically important. Ms. Peirce then went on to ask the committee to consider ambiguities surrounding the proposed exemptive framework including, one, potential limitations presented by state securities laws, two, the requirement to be a natural person to qualify for the exemption, three, the scope of the activities generally, and four, the availability of the exemption for a secondary offering. What are some of the key takeaways here? I think Chair Clayton points out in his remarks that raising money for small businesses is not big business. The costs and registration requirements can be very onerous, that being said, both Democratic commissioners dissented from the adoption of this proposal to exempt finders from broker-dealer registration. Commissioner Crenshaw and Commissioner Lee discussed their concerns with the proposed rule, with Commissioner Lee making the point that, that we, you know, maybe not engage in a complete departure from registration, but rather a, quote, scaled registration model that could be used to tailor 
investor protections to the specific risks involved in the finder's activity and keep some of those valuable protections that include certain record-keeping requirements and the ability to inspect for compliance. I think both those points are pretty valid and not unlike other frameworks the Commission already has in place, say, for instance, with exempt reporting advisors and other similar entities. While I agree that it is not obvious that full deregistration rather than, say, registration light is the best answer, it would seem to provide more potential for the, the rule proposal in general would seem to provide more potential for helping small businesses than the current regime. And given the stress and demands this pandemic has put on businesses of all shapes and sizes, but particularly small businesses, additional opportunities to capital formation that could help potentially save a business seems like a path that we need to explore. While I do think there's the potential that full deregistration at the federal level would likely or could likely lead to the decision of registration related to this activity being pushed down to the state level. Some could argue this is both a a good or a bad result. It does likely mean that if that were to occur, that the states could then reasonably decide to take different paths as to how to best facilitate the raising of money for small businesses within their jurisdiction. Taking it all together, whether it's full deregistration or registration light, I don't think that I could support the spirit of this SEC proposal hard enough. And like Commissioners Clayton and Purse, I would encourage the Small Business Advisory Committee to consider the proposed registration and hopefully help find a workable solution for so many small businesses out there that are in desperate need of capital. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Miriam Lefkowitz, for her excellent take on how firms can best prepare for the practical application of regulation best interest into their compliance programs. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to complianceincontextpodcast.com to listen and learn more.